And please remain standing and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. It's our second sermon in our new series through the book of Revelation. And still covering some of the verses from the previous uh, time, from the previous Lord's Day, but uh, adding a couple more. We'll go through more verses at a time or larger passages in the future right now as we're sort of doing a mini-series on the major themes throughout the book of Revelation. So trying to draw those out here from the first chapter. And so our text this morning is Revelation chapter 1. Verses 1 through 5a. This is God's holy word. You would do well to give it your full attention. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. The book of Revelation is a letter. In many ways, it's like any other letter. It begins by stating who the letter is from, the Apostle John. It states to who the letter is for, or written to, the seven churches. And it also has a salutation, which was typical to the other letters of the New Testament. But on the other hand, this letter was very different from other letters written in the first century or the other epistles that we find in the New Testament. As we discussed last week, John stated that this letter was a revelation that he has received. And that word revelation comes from the Greek word apokalupsis, which means to reveal or to unveil. It's where we get our English word apocalypse, which is simply a revelation of something that is hidden or concealed. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ is specifically a revealing of heavenly realities that are presently veiled to our human eyes. And so what John wrote down is an unveiling. It's what we would see if the curtain between heaven and earth was removed. And this type of revelation is not what was usually communicated in the other New Testament letters. And to add to this uniqueness, this revelation was communicated in symbols. 
As I've been mentioning both last Lord's Day or, or maybe it was two Lord's Days ago uh, when I was last preaching in Revelation, uh, and as I have said today, we're discussing the major themes of the book of Revelation, and symbolism is another one of the major themes. In fact, apocalyptic literature often uses symbols to communicate its message to the hearers or to its hearers and its readers. Now, some interpreters of this book want to interpret it literally rather than symbolically. But John himself tells us from the very first verse that it is a revelation communicated by symbols. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now, where he says he, that is Christ, made it known. That is from one Greek word, the word semeon, which means to communicate by sign or symbol. Just to give you one example of of this word being used elsewhere in Scripture, in Romans chapter 4, verse 11, Paul, speaking about Abraham, said, He received the sign of circumcision. You see, circumcision was a sign that symbolized other realities. And in this case, it symbolized the covenant that God made between himself and Abraham. Now, that same word that Paul uses as a noun, the Apostle John uses as a verb in verse 1. And signified would probably be a better translation than made known, which is what ESV, the ESV, and other translations have it. So something like Christ signified it by sending his angel. Or Christ communicated it through signs or symbols by sending his angel to his servant John. The point here is that the book is not to be interpreted literally, but symbolically. Which makes this a unique kind of letter that we have in the New Testament. Now, what do we mean? When we say that it should not be translated literally. Does that mean that the things in the book are not actually going to take place? Well, of course, that is not what we mean. Let me give you an illustration that I heard that helped me in understanding this type of literature. You see, if you saw a newspaper... Uh, And in the newspaper, uh, there was uh, a picture of an elephant and a donkey in a race. Would you interpret that picture literally? No, of course you wouldn't. You would understand that it's referring to two political parties running a political race. And so you would understand that it's a symbol of something real, something that is truly taking place, in this case, the political race between those parties. And that's how the book of Revelation is communicating its message. 
through symbols about things that will actually take place. Now, we already begin to see symbolism in our passage this morning. For example, when John indicates who the recipients of this letter are to be, he says in verse 4, to the seven churches that are in Asia. The letter was to be circulated to seven churches. We find out who those churches are in chapters 2 and 3. They are the church in Ephesus, in Smyrna, in Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But the number seven is of symbolic use really throughout all of Scripture, but especially in the book of Revelation. You probably know that in the Bible, the number seven symbolizes oftentimes Uh, perfection or completeness, the fullness of something. Well, that symbolism is used frequently here in the book of Revelation. And so when the letter says it was addressed to seven churches, it is saying that the letter is to the complete church, the whole church throughout this age until Christ returns. It certainly would have been circulated to those specific seven churches, but those weren't the only churches in Asia Minor at the time. It was written for the church throughout this whole age. Each of the commendations and reprimands that those seven churches received were commendations and reprimands that the church throughout this age needed to hear. They were representative, we might say, of the church universal, of the church as a whole, the complete and entire church throughout this age. And so it certainly was to those seven churches, but this letter is equally written to Christ's covenant Presbyterian church and to every church that has existed between the first century and the century we live in today. Symbolism then is a major theme throughout the book. In fact, we will see the symbolism of the number seven again right here in our very passage this morning, which we will look at in just a few moments. But the symbolism is not confined to the number seven. There are all sorts of symbols that we will see throughout the book. And so uh, I thought it was important to point that out as a major theme, or at least as something to uh, note ahead of time as we work through this series in Revelation. Now, another major theme throughout the book is the Trinity. And the rest of verse 4 and the first part of verse 5 contains a salutation from the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bestowing grace and peace upon his church. Now, the Father is named first as the one who is and who was and who is to come. And that is a variation of the covenant name of God, the covenant name, Yahweh. We learn about that name in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses asks the Lord, who shall he say has sent him? And the Lord responds to him saying, tell them I am that I am has sent you. Or it could be translated, tell them I will be who I will be has sent you. 
Now the Jews extended the covenant name of God in some of their targums to the one who is and who was and who will be. That's sort of how they interpreted that statement. I am that I am, or I will be who I will be. And uh, began to speak of it as the one who is and who was and who will be. You see, God, beloved, is eternal and unchangeable. He is the unchangeable one. And this would be a comfort to the hearers of this letter. He is the one who is, who was, and who will be. The God who is faithful and never changes addresses the hearers of this letter and bestows his grace and his peace upon them. And so John uses a variation of the covenant name of God. And he says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. He does not end with who will be, as is expected. He doesn't say who is, who was, and who will be. But he says who was, or who is and who was, and who is to come. The book of Revelation is largely about the coming of God through Jesus Christ. Really, another major theme, perhaps the preeminent theme throughout the book, is the coming of God through Jesus Christ. Now, the salutation is also from the Holy Spirit, whom John names second. He says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, why in the world would John say there are seven spirits? Is there really one God in nine persons? Is John a little confused? Well, of course not. We're back to the symbolism of the letter. Generally, this is a description of the fullness or the wholeness of the Spirit of God. Some even translate it, and I do think it's a slightly better translation, uh, the sevenfold spirit. But more specifically, find out a little bit more about the number seven as related to the Holy Spirit in chapters four and five. And in chapter four, verse five, the Holy Spirit is spoken of as the seven torches of fire. Now what's going on there? Well, in that chapter, John is having a vision of the heavenly temple or the heavenly tabernacle. And we know what the seven torches of fire were in the earthly copy of the tabernacle or of the temple. You remember Moses had the tabernacle built after the pattern that was shown him on the mountain. And the pattern was the heavenly reality. The copy was the tabernacle. And so in the earthly tabernacle, what, was, what would that seven torches be referring to? Well, it's a reference to the menorah, which was a seven-branched lampstand with fire or torches, torches burning on its seven branches. And so it's symbolizing the fire and luminous activity of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what the menorah or the fire on the menorah symbolized in the Old Testament. And then in chapter 5, 
the Holy Spirit is spoken of as the seven eyes of God, pointing out that God is all-seeing. He sees everything completely. He sees the whole of history. He, of course, does because he is its author. So he is the all-seeing God. Both of these are allusions to the night visions in the book of Zechariah, and we will discuss them more, of course, when we get to those chapters. But you can see the symbolism involved here. There's another aspect really to the symbolism here between the number seven and the Holy Spirit, which relates to the seven churches. You see, the letter was to be sent to the seven churches who are later called what? Lampstands. They are representative of the whole church, the complete church throughout this whole age. And so the sevenfoldness of the Spirit speaks to the activity of the Holy Spirit in the universal church. Think about the warnings that he gives to some of those churches in the letter. If they do not repent, Christ says that he will come to them. There's the theme of Christ's coming. He will come to them and remove their lampstands. In other words, he will remove the presence of the Holy Spirit from that church. And that is a warning to all churches throughout this age. And so I hope you can see how the symbolism is working throughout the letter. Finally, we are told that the salutation is also from the Son. Rounding out the Trinity. It's from the Father, from the Holy Spirit, and also from the Son. And his description of the Son is really a brief sketch of the gospel. He describes the Son as the faithful witness. Now the word translated witness here, we're talking about Greek words way more than we normally do, uh, but the The word there is martyreo. It's where we get our English word martyr. And a definition of a martyr is someone who dies for their religious cause or someone who bears witness or testimony to their religious cause. Now, in the book of Revelation, that can refer to either the death of Christians, generally speaking, who in their lives bore witness to or testimony to Christ, Or it can also refer to those who are actually put to death for their testimony to Christ. Now this, ultimately, this definition, this word of being a witness, him being called the faithful witness, testifies to the fact that he is himself. Jesus is the preeminent witness. He is the preeminent martyr. He is the faithful witness in light of his death on the cross. His death bears the preeminent testimony to the cause of the Christian faith. Now to bear witness or testimony is a major theme that I will speak more on here in just a little bit. But let's move on for just a moment to the next description of Christ. He began with a reference to to the death of Christ as the faithful witness. But then he also speaks about the resurrection. 
when he says that he is the firstborn of the dead. Now we know that there will be many who will be raised from the grave with glorified bodies, but of those, Christ was the firstborn. And so we have the death and resurrection here included, but John concludes his description of Christ by saying that he is the ruler of the kings on earth. And this is a reference to the exaltation of Christ. When he ascended into heaven after his death and resurrection, he sat down on his throne at the right hand of God the Father. And that, beloved, is when his reign began. He's already, currently, the ruler of the kings on earth. Now, this is related to his being the firstborn of the dead. In the Old Testament, the firstborn was the heir of the father's inheritance. Christ, as the God-man, is the inheritor of all that is the father's, which is the whole of creation. Remember what Jesus said just before his ascension into heaven. He said, all authority... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the ruler of all the kings on earth. He reigns supreme. And so here as he's described by John in this salutation. He is the, he's preeminent in his witness preeminent in his resurrection and preeminent as the king of kings, being the ruler of the kings on earth. And so you see here, he gives us just a brief sketch of the gospel just in this salutation. Christ died for the sins of his people, rose again on the third day and ascended up into heaven, being exalted To sit at the right hand of God the Father. And so that concludes the salutation given to us by the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned, the Trinity is a major theme throughout this letter. The triune God is active throughout all of history and in all the events leading up to the end. He is the eternal and sovereign one who is coming. The one who came to earth bore perfect testimony to the mission given to him by the Father and who is present with us still through the all-seeing spirit who dwells in and with his church. Now on this note, I need to point out that there is another theme in the book related to the Trinity. And specifically, it is the opposition of the Trinity. It is what the book of Revelation presents as a counterfeit Trinity. In a counterfeit relation to the Holy Trinity, there is the evil Trinity. You see, corresponding to the Father, there is the dragon. Corresponding to the Son, there is the beast. And corresponding to the Holy Spirit, there is the false prophet. 
The dragon tries to accomplish his purposes through the beast, just as God the Father accomplishes his purposes through the Son. And just as the Holy Spirit leads us to all truth, in opposition to that, the false prophet tries to deceive. You see, Satan, in counterfeiting, is not original. He can only counterfeit God, who alone is original, who alone is triune. And so alongside the Trinity as a major theme, there is the theme of counterfeiting. And there's even a counterfeiting to the people of God throughout this letter. God's people, the church, are spoken of as the bride. The bride of Christ who have the seal or the mark of God on their foreheads. They are the city of God, the new Jerusalem. But the counterfeit of this is the harlot Babylon. This is the city of man which is filled with those who bear the mark of the beast on their foreheads. And this counterfeit trinity seeks to wreak havoc On the people of God. And the counterfeit city. The holy Babylon wants to ruin the new Jerusalem. The bride of Christ. Wants to seduce them and bring them into. Their own city. The harlot Babylon. The dragon sends the beast at times. To persecute the church. The false prophet intends to deceive people from seeing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the harlot Babylon tries to seduce people into joining into her sexual immorality and all of her abominations. And that, beloved, is what the church faces throughout this age until Christ returns. Persecution. Deception. And seduction or temptation. But those who bear the seal of God on their forehead will not be overcome by these evil counterfeit imposters. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the seal of God that is on the foreheads of his people is an allusion to the golden plate on the turban of the high priest in the Old Testament. And on that plate, we've looked at the book of Leviticus, we've seen the activity of the high high priest who would go into the tabernacle. But Old Testament scripture tells us about that turban and that plate, that golden plate that sat on his forehead, which had an inscription on it that said, Holy to the Lord. And that inscription was, was sealed on that plate, and it lied on his forehead, noting that he was set apart or holy unto the Lord. And that, my friends, is the testimony that we are to bear for the Lord. So we're back to the the theme of bearing witness, aren't we? Jesus is the preeminent witness, having laid down his life, but... John even calls himself a witness in our passage. In verse 2, he says that he bore witness to the word of God and to the 
testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, when you see those words, bore witness and testimony, both of them come from that word martyreo. And like John, beloved, we are to bear witness or testify to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And our testimony is a major theme throughout the book. It is how we overcome or conquer the evil counterfeit trinity and all those who follow him. Revelation chapter 12 spells this out for us. In that chapter, the ancient serpent, the dragon, who is the devil, is thrown down. And then in verse 11 it says, And they, that is believers, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. You see, you conquer the devil by the testimony of your faith in the Lamb. The Lamb himself conquered the devil through his own death. And as you await his return, you also conquer the devil through your testimony, through your witness to the Lamb. And you are to bear witness to that truth, that gospel, even unto death. That is the witness. That you are to maintain. Now beloved. God gave us the church. The bride of Christ. To help us maintain that witness. To the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we the session. Want to help you. As you deal with persecution, deception, and seduction or temptation. We want to help in your preparation for any persecution, deception, and temptation that you may encounter throughout or from the forces of darkness in this world. But listen, you have to be here. For us to help you in that preparation, you have to be here. And I hope that preaching through this book will awaken you to the spiritual warfare that is going on all around us. I think we all see it to some degree, but I think the church misses it at times as well. Because the church is losing many of the battles. Now, the war has already been won. Don't get me wrong. It has been won. Christ won the victory at the cross. But battles continue to be fought. And at times, we, the church, are losing those battles. We take hope and know that God is sovereign over all. But he's given us commands. He's told us how to bear witness, how to bear testimony to Christ in this age. And in this series, as the book of Revelation unveils to us the spiritual warfare that is taking place, we have to allow it to wake us up to these realities because we often fail. 
and fall short. One of the major battle fronts going on today, there's many, but the huge push today is this whole LGBTQ movement. And all that is, beloved, is deception by the false prophet and seduction by the harlot Babylon. And most likely this issue, among others, are going to lead to greater and greater persecution for the church. After all, Revelation 17 describes Babylon as the mother of prostitutes who is drunk with the blood of the saints. The blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. You see, if you don't fall prey to her seduction, then the beast will seek to take your life. And if and when he does, the harlot who sits upon his shoulders gets drunk off of your blood. It's symbolism, but that's real, beloved. And it is time to wake up and to start living like it's real. Too many within the church have fallen prey to the harlot Babylon and to the counterfeit trinity. Some of our own children have already run to Babylon, the mother of all prostitutes. And I'm not talking just about the church out there. As if we don't experience it here. I'm talking about Christ's covenant Presbyterian church. And listen, there are other issues as well. It's not just LGBTQ or whatever other letter they have. And I want you to know it's not the worst thing in the world to be gay or lesbian. The worst thing in the world is to wake up one day and to stand before the judgment seat of Christ the King. And to be condemned for eternity to the fires of perdition. That is coming. On the last day, many will face the reality of standing before Christ and because of a lack of true faith and a lack of true repentance will wish for the mountains to fall upon them so that they can escape the presence of God and the fire and the fury of His wrath. You see, it's not just LGBTQ that is the problem. Heterosexual immorality, alcoholism, worldliness in general... All which are here. All of it is what Satan and the world offers and seeks to draw us away with. And if that doesn't work, then maybe persecution will. Beloved, we want to help you, the families of CCPC, but you have to be here. Our membership here at CCPC is just shy of 100 members. But we average weekly about 65 or 70 in attendance each Lord's Day and sometimes less. And of course, there are legitimate reasons to miss. But you've got to be here. Your children have got to be here. It has to be a priority. And I'm not just talking about morning worship service I've taught several times on the biblical grounds for evening worship service as well. 
And I know that it can be a sacrifice to be here sometimes. I think ultimately it's a privilege. We ought to view it that way anyway, as a privilege to be here with one another and to be lifting one another up in the faith and ultimately to be worshiping God. But sometimes it can be a sacrifice or at least feel that way. However, that's part of our warfare. We are called to be living sacrifices to God. Now, in exhorting you in this way, I want to say a couple things just to make sure you're not misunderstanding what I'm saying. Make sure I'm not confusing you with anything. First, I'm not saying that if we make ourselves more present in the life and activity of the church, that henceforth, no one will ever fall away from the church. It's not some sort of magical thing where if you just come, You'll be prevented from apostasy. That's the first thing. Secondly, I'm not saying that we all need to be here to learn about all the deceptions of the false prophet and all the seductions of the harlot prophet. We certainly can and will discuss those things at times. But it's not ultimately by learning about the counterfeit trinity and all of their work That we are prepared to overcome them. We are able to overcome persecution, deception, and seduction by learning the truths of the gospel and the doctrines of the Holy Holy Scriptures. See, those who deal with counterfeit money will tell you that the best way to spot a counterfeit is to know the real thing. They will tell you that there's too many counterfeits out there to study all of them. But if you know the real thing, in and out, backwards and forwards, then you will easily be able to spot a counterfeit. And that's the way it is with our spiritual warfare. If you know the truth of the gospel, the doctrines of Holy Scripture, if you're continually progressing in those things, you will be able to spot all the counterfeits of the evil trinity. Beloved, the Apostle John was commanded to write the book of Revelation in order to unveil the warfare taking place all around us. We have to wake up. We have to be alert and prepared for it. And I'm not just saying this to a few of you or to all of you to the exclusion of myself. Every one of us in some way needs to wake up. Because we all struggle with sin, there are different ways that we need to wake up and be prepared for the battles that are taking place. It's only Sermon 2, and I've already been convicted in the Holy Spirit opening my own eyes as we begin. Christ calls five of the seven churches to repent. And if they are representative of the whole church, then those calls to repentance are to us as well. Christ's warning to repent or else have your lampstand removed still remains for the church today. It is a warning for us, 
even here at Christ's covenant, even in the OPC. And so let us do all we can individually, in our families, and within our church to be prepared and equipped to fight the good fight and to conquer our enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony to Jesus Christ. To him be all glory and power now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our most holy, most wise, most powerful God, who is ruling over all things, whom we can trust, is leading to the perfect end which he predestined from before the foundation of the world. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts of understanding that we might walk in your ways, not veering to the right nor to the left, but seeking always after Christ who is seated at your right hand, who will be active in Christ's mission to call his people to himself through the proclamation of the gospel. May we never lose sight of our mission to worship you, to share the good news. And so may you continually equip us. May we all seek to edify one another, building one another up in love and good works. We pray that you'd be glorified in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.